got a question for you. How many words do you reckon we say on average in a day? Shout out. How many words? That's very accurate, but wrong. <laughs> precise, I meant to say, precise. 15,000. 16. Any advance? You get the price for being the nearest so far. On average, they've worked out that we speak, on average, 30,000 words a day. That's, I'll count it out, that's what's in this book. 30,000, we speak a book full of words every day. But it hasn't always been like that. Go back to the 16th century and we spoke a lot less, so the historians tell us. We were a much less voluble society. And it's probably the introduction of the mass media with the invention of the printing press in the late 15th century and into the 16th century that kind of spurred on this use of words. And today, I don't need to spell it out, but we're living in a communication explosion, aren't we? Just in previous 20, 30 years, massive explosion of communication technology. And that, what's interesting is that's despite the fact that we are a culture, a society, where the image has taken over from the word. It seems to be that the more images that dominate our lives, the more words were pouring out. And it, it wasn't, certainly wasn't like that when I was a boy, um, growing up in a little village in central Scotland. Um, I remember the highlight of the week was when my mother brought home the Women's Weekly. And I used to read the problems page and the letters. It was before we had television. <laughs> um, and then we were able to get, could afford comics, so I got the victor, and so I left the women's magazines way behind, thank goodness. But in those days, those magazines, they were filled with words, with one or two pictures. Uh, you open a women's magazine today, not something I've done, but any magazine, it's probably about 80% of it is images, isn't it? And there's a little bit of wordage. You could say, never have so many people spoken so many words and managed to say so little. We live under a torrent of words. They're pouring down upon us. And it's a little bit like um, the Bank of England. What do they call it? Um, the printing more money. What do they call that? Uh, quantity, qu quantitative easing. We've had that with the use of words, with the use of the tongue in the past generation. Quantitative, the more words we pour into um, our culture, the more, de the more devalued they become. So words today don't really have the weight and the authority they had in an earlier generation. And although we are communicating more and more with one another, we're actually, what we're actually communicating communicating is more and more idle chit-chat. So today, um, that kind of meaningful communication is at an all-time low. For instance, how many of us actually believe what comes off the tongue of our politicians? There you are. Do we trust the integrity of our journalists who are spewing out words on the media day in, day out? Not a lot of us do anymore. Are we taken in by the words that we hear in those seductive adverts where the words are very carefully written? And No, I don't think we do. 
it's all words, words, words. And because there's so many of them, we don't value them as much as previous generations. They've become devalued through the sheer quantity. And so we, when we meet someone who is a person of few words, we've all, we all know people, men and women, who are people of a few words. I don't know if, ever, if any of you have ever seen the film Being There, um, Peter Sellers. It's about a very simple-minded gardener um, called Chauncey. And it's a long time since I've seen it, so I might get it wrong. But he eventually um, worked for a very wealthy businessman, I think in New York, um, who was dying. And um, when Chauncey went to work for him, the, this very wealthy businessman asked him, you know, what he did. And he says, I'm a gardener. He hardly ever spoke. And, um, and, uh, and one day he, he, the, the businessman asked him, um, uh, what happens in the spring? And Chauncey says, uh, the buds appear on the trees and then the leaves come. And it's a comedy. And um, this businessman interpreted these words as being so meaningful and so important that he thought there was some hidden meaning in them. And he, he was in the stock market. So he was, uh, for instance, later, he, 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 uh, Chauncey, he was talking to Chauncey about his garden. And um, he says, uh, uh, what, what, what happens after the summer? Um, and meaning, what are you going to be doing in the garden? And Chauncey says, after the summer comes the fall and the leaves come off the trees. And his words were taken to mean that the stock market was going to collapse in the autumn. <laughs> so it's a brilliant comedy, but it, it is actually about the power of the tongue, the power of words. And because this man, Chauncey, spoke so little, there was a huge weight put upon what he did say. Okay, that's a comedy. But this, what we've just read, James is writing, for him, the use of the tongue is anything but a comedy. James is talking about the fearful, the terrible, uncontrollable, rampant nature of this tiny organ. One minute it can be licking an ice cream and the next tearing someone to shreds. Or as James put it, one minute it can be praising the Lord and the next minute cursing someone. And I just... When I started looking at that passage seriously, because James is so scathing about the tongue, and, and I was taken aback by the, you can get almost the, the passion of kind of feeling, negative feeling he has about the tongue. Did, did you get that from the reading? That, wow, the, this poor little thing in their mouths, he's really got it in for it. There seems to be no redeeming aspect of the tongue whatsoever. Just some of the things he says. It's a restless evil, full of poison. The tongue's a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And this is the bit that gets me, set on fire by hell. Wow, this thing that's... You know, he's talking about it in such a negative, almost with vitriolic hatred, you almost think. That, wow, has he got anything good to say about it? He's really got it in for this tiny little organ. And you almost want to feel sorry for it. But why? Why is he so 
why is he so heated up? Why is he got his dander up so much about this little organ? Well, I think, and I could be wrong, but I'm assuming certain things. At the time James was writing, the church was very, very young. It was also going through a terrible time of divisions. People were saying, oh, I'm not, you know, I don't follow that preacher, I follow this preacher, I'm, a, I'm not of Paul, I'm of Apollos, all that kind of stuff. Lots of divisions. There was also a huge amount of false teaching. And in fact, the whole letter that James wrote was actually to correct false teaching because James, he's obviously it's the most practical letter ever written. Not much theology, but it's all practical. Because the people, probably somewhere along the line, somebody was saying, oh, the, you know, it's just, we're just saved by faith and that's it. It's, um, you know, don't bother about anything else. It's, you don't have to, you don't have to sort of have any evidence of your faith by doing all these things. And so James wrote the letter to remind those Jewish believers to correct their false impression, their false teaching that had received. And also, he'd seen the devastation that had been wrought amongst the young church through the use of the tongue. But also, he was a half-brother of Jesus. So he would have seen and um, been a witness to the awful way the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders used their tongue to ultimately get hung on a cross and he would see that all the hatred and all the vile stuff that spewed out of these Pharisees against his half-brother. So James, I think, you can understand then, you get a little bit of background as to why he was so heated about this tongue and why he felt it was so negative. And when you look at the New Testament letters, an awful lot of them are written trying to correct and put right problems that were caused by the tongue, like false teaching. That's why James says, don't rush all of you to become teachers, because this false teaching thing is, is a huge issue. It was a huge issue then, and it's still a big issue today, the issue of false teaching. There's two things I fear the most when I've get, I'm given an opportunity like this. One is it being boring, but the other is actually a bit more important. The other thing I really fear is of, is of giving you false doctrine, of teaching you wrong things about God. It's a huge responsibility. I mean, it's such a big responsibility. I mean, even Spurgeon said the call to preach is a far weightier call than the call to be prime minister. Because those who preach and teach are handling the oracles of God. They're handling things which are so precious. And we've cheapened it today by... Sometimes it's too much of God. Do you, do you follow? You can switch on a switch and you can get God coming out the radio, pouring out your television set, and it's like quantitative easing. There's so much of it that it becomes devalued and debased. You don't get the preciousness of it. I remember being very moved reading the accounts of Christians in, uh, persecuted Christians in, in Russia, in the um, gulags, and how one of them had a little fragment of a page of the Bible and how that was the most treasured possession. Just half a page of a bit of the Bible. They treasured it so much. And our culture, we've got so much. If, I mean, if we're in a church culture and we know where to get the stuff, and I find it uncomfortable, you can switch on UCB, <coughs> sorry, 
and um, you get all this stuff coming out, God's stuff, and for me it just debases it, it cheapens the whole thing. But then we need to move on. Um, James actually says something which I find very comforting. He says, we all stumble in many ways. So we're all in the same boat. None of us. He says, um, the man who says he never says a wrong word is perfect. Well, who among us is perfect? Nobody's perfect. So we're all in the same boat. Hands up here who's never said a wrong word in their lives. Nobody. We've all done it. And James says this, which I think is brilliant because we don't need to feel whipped and, and so guilty that we've said things we shouldn't have said. We're all in the same boat and we know that you know, when we do say something wrong, we know where to go for forgiveness. So we're all, in this, we're all in it together. So we have to get over it. I, I get particularly sensitive if I feel I've said something that's hurtful to somebody. If there's something in me, I, I, would, I would move heaven and earth to take it back, but obviously we can't. You know the saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There was never a more wrong statement, was there? We all know what it is. We all are utterers of hurtful words, but we are all receivers of hurtful, wounding words. We know we've said something to somebody and we've seen the hurt in their face. And we thought, oh, wish I hadn't said that. And there's nothing we can do. It's gone out and we can never take it back. We can never erase it. The other person may forgive us, but the relationship may be affected forever. The same with when people wound us and say hurtful things to us. Even going back to childhood, things can be said that carry on into adulthood. We know what it is to both inflict hurt through our tongue, but we also know what it is to receive hurt through the other's tongue. Do you know, they say it takes five compliments to make up for one criticism. That's amazing, isn't it? So, at the end of this service, if one of you come up, comes up to me and says, that was rubbish, five of you will need to come and say, that was okay, in order for me to go home happy. <laughs> no, the words we say, that's the tragedy of it, the words we say can never be brought back. They can cause their wounds, they can do their damage. And we're stuck with it. But then James goes on to describe it as, a, as like he uses um, he's describing how the tongue, this tiny little thing, can have a huge impact on something big. He uses the bit in a horse for instance. And then the one, my favourite one is he's describing the tongue to a rudder a rudder of a ship. Well, I think there's a certain Captain Schettino languishing somewhere in Italy, regretting the little tweak he did on the rudder of his ship, the Costa, Costa, what was it? The Costa Concordia. And we all know, the whole world knows what happened. Just a little... He was actually trying to show off, I believe, I think they say, going too close to the island. But that tiny rudder, when you compare the size of that huge ship, this tiny little rudder, just a little flick like that, it went just too close and hit the rocks. 
Wow, what, a, what a, an amazing picture of the, the power of the tongue. This tiny little thing could affect something so big. Something so big. Do you know, the Second World War probably wouldn't have happened if a painter with a moustache hadn't had the ability to use his tongue in a particular way to whip up a people and then whip up a nation into a nationalistic frenzy. Hitler knew how to use the tongue to get what he wanted. That little tongue and the whole world suffered as the consequences. In James's day, it was the great orators. They knew how to speak. They were, could speak so eloquently. They could move crowds. They could persuade crowds to, to follow a particular course of action with the powerful use of their tongue. Look at some of the great reformers in recent, not so well compared to 2,000 years ago, fairly recent history. People like William Wilberforce used his tongue to eventually end the slave trade. His debates and his arguings in Parliament it took him 27 years to do it, but that was the tongue. Martin Luther King, how many of us remember little snatches from I Have a Dream? Remember that speech? Marvelous use of the tongue. And that affected a whole nation. Ultimately, they outlawed segregation. Gandhi had the trained tongue of a skilled lawyer. And ultimately, because of that, the British get kicked out of India. And then James describes it as a fire. The tongue is a fire. Why does he call it a fire? A fire from hell, wow. Fire, what does fire do? It spreads and it destroys, doesn't it? It spreads and it causes devastation. As I said, I grew up in a little village in central Scotland, not far from the Trossachs, if you know where that is, not near Loch Lomond. Top of the village was a moor, moorland. Bottom of the village was the river Enric. It was called Balfron. And I remember one very hot summer, me and my best schoolmate, um, John, we went up to the moor. We were only about 13 or 14 at the, at the time. We went up onto the moor just on the edge of the village. And John had got some matches. He liked to have a little cigarette now and again. I didn't smoke. <coughs> um, well, once, but that was enough. And um, just as a lark, John started striking a match and throwing it down. And the, the heather and the grass was like tinder dry and it would catch fire. And um, then we'd stamp it out. And then he'd throw another match down and, and we would stamp it out. And then he threw one match down, and the thing went up, and we couldn't stamp it out. And we, it just spread and spread so rapidly, we were rushing around like mad things, trying to stamp it out. And it just spread and spread and grew and grew, and we realized there was nothing we could do to stop it. And we absolutely panicked, um, because a hundred yards away was a house on its own, in right next to where this heather was. And we could envisage the wind blowing this fire towards the house and it going up and everybody in it. And oh boy, we, we just panicked. So we thought, we've well, got to get out of here. And uh, so we didn't want to be seen to be coming off of the moor because people would realise that we'd done it. So we took a very circuitous route right round the outside of the village, right down to the south side and up into the bottom of the village from the river end. And as we came up the main street, 
it was like fog had descended in the village. All the smoke from the moor and the fire <laughs> was blowing into the village. And the whole place was thick with smoke and the smell of it. And we thought, what on earth have we done? And, you know, we didn't sleep that night. We just, it was awful. So as soon as we could the following day, or it might, well, we waited till the fire went out. <laughs> but went up the following day, I think it was, to where we'd lit, accidentally lit the, the moor. And as far as the eye could see, right to the, it was just charred heather. Thank the Lord, the, the house was okay. It hadn't reached that far. But I'll never forget the sight of the devastation. Black, charred heather, right to the horizon. That was a very, very apt picture of the destructive power of the tongue. James used a forest for us it was a moor. But I want to bring it down to the nitty-gritty and perhaps the most destructive type of fire in any community is gossip. Gossip. And if it's not stopped at the source, like we try to stop the fire on the moor, it will spread ever so quickly. Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And I think that's particularly true of gossip. Many a church fellowship has been killed off by gossip. The problem is that as Christians, we don't really see gossip as being an evil thing. We don't really see gossip as being something set in fire by hell. Paul knew the power of gossip. It's interesting. I mean, there were those who said, oh, Paul, yes, his letters are very weighty. He may write powerful letters and say a lot of big things in them, but if you actually meet him, you'll find that he's of no consequence. He's just, in actual fact, he's a bit of a wimp. That's what they were saying about Paul. And when you speak, well, you wonder what all the fuss is about. His speech has got no authority. There's, no, there's nothing about him. He can't even speak very well. And all this gossip eating away at Paul. But to get back to that, what I said about gossip, we, I think in the church we don't really see the evil it is. I could go to a church, and I think I, I did this at our church, I'm not going to do it here, but um, I could tattletale about a, some church leader who's having an affair. And um, you'd go, oh, tell us more. Um, but if I was to suddenly use the F word in response to somebody, it would be shock, horror. Which is the more harmful? Destroying somebody's character or letting... <coughs> the odds cuss word slip out under duress we don't see the evil there is in gossip so my plea and I'm sure I don't need to make it but please make sure your church here is a gossip free zone because where there's no gossip there is healing and good things happening and there's a lovely atmosphere here this morning I just 
sense it. And but all it takes is one yap, 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 yap to destroy it. We must guard against it. It's the most precious thing. And if, if there's only one thing I say to you this morning from all of this that James has said it is just keep your church a gossip-free zone and you will know God's blessing. James goes on to say a very startling thing, a startling thing which actually gives us great hope as well. He, said, he says, he talks about no human being can control the tongue. We can tame animals, we can tame tigers and, and um, killer whales and white sharks. You can even tame them, but we cannot tame the tongue. So is there any hope for us? Well, yes, there is, because if you think of what he said, he says, no human being can control the tongue, but there is one who can control the tongue. And he is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of God. And when we allow the Spirit of God to have influence in our lives, like the clay, when we allow ourselves to be molded and we're soft and pliable in God's hands, the Holy Spirit can take away these desires if we let him. It's all about cooperating with God. That's what walking by the Spirit is. It's not feeling certain urges and twitches and sort of... It's about cooperating with the Spirit of God and letting him have a way among us. And when we do that, we find that our tongue comes under control and we, we stop saying the hurtful things. We start being aware of what we're saying. So that's my other plea. As we walk by the Spirit, as we yield to the Holy Spirit and allow Him, it's all about permission and allowing and trusting Him. He will do the job. I just want one final thing to say, and I feel this is really important. We've concentrated on the output of the tongue. I don't need to categorize all the awful things we can say, but we've concentrated on the output of the tongue. But I want to close with something which is the very opposite. It's when we don't say things when we should say things. It's when our tongue is stuck to the roof of our mouth when it should be active. And I'm thinking in terms of using our tongue to say those healing and encouraging things, those things which draw us closer to one another and draw us closer to our Father. Can help someone along the way, just a little encouraging word. There's a story of a pastor, I don't know where I heard of it, but the story of a pastor, very quickly, who um, he was never thanked for his sermon, he was never shown any appreciation, and he got so discouraged, one day he went into his study, got all the books out, made a big pile of them in his garden, set fire to them, and he walked away from the ministry. Such is the power of discouragement. Proverbs says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in the setting of silver. I'm going to say one more thing, and with this I close. Rob Parsons, you know, care for the family? He tells this very moving story of a letter he received from a woman who was struggling with real depression, sense of guilt, no self-worth. And she said, I grew up with a father who never praised me. He never encouraged me. He never said I was any good at anything. I wanted to be an actress. He wanted me to be an accountant. And I became an accountant. 
and I've lived my life with this terrible sense of uselessness, of guilt, of shame. The sense of guilt. She was 85. She carried that all those years just because her father didn't use his tongue in an encouraging, affirming way on his child. Yes, our tongue can say the most hurtful things, but it can also fail to say the most encouraging and healing things. Let's make sure that in this coming week we say at least one or two good things a day to somebody, give them praise and thanks. And you know, when you do that, it actually lifts you up. You benefit yourself from it. Just a quick prayer. Father, thank you that you can control our tongues when we let you. And we pray, Father, that you would, you would make us people who are conscious of what we say. And help us to be people, Lord, who are thinking of good things to say to people, encouraging things to say to people. That we may grow in love for one another and grow in our love for you. Because, Lord, we are your apple. We are the apple of your eye. No, we are the eye of your... Well, you know what I mean, Lord. We are very precious to you. And you love us, and you have only good things to say about us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>